0: Show is a dose of inspiration. This is Success Profiles Radio. And now, here's your host, Brian K. Wright.
1: Hello and welcome to Success Profiles Radio. I'm your host, Brian K. Wright, and it is a pleasure to be with you here today. I'm honored that you chose to spend part of your day with me here, and this is going to be a really fantastic show I'll be introducing my guest shortly, and I promise this will be a fun and informative hour. It will be terrific. I just want to take a minute or two to share some things I've been learning and thinking about lately, and I will do this every single week. Recently, I've been thinking about the idea of why things are sometimes difficult for us in life. It seems like we're doing all the right things. It feels like we're doing everything we can to push forward, but we don't see the progress we want to make. Listen to this. Sometimes it's a matter of only having a few of the puzzle pieces that you need available in that given moment. When we put together a jigsaw puzzle, there always seems to be that one piece that doesn't seem to fit right. But only when a couple of other pieces magically appear do we understand why the first piece didn't fit anywhere. It had to go with the pieces we haven't seen yet. So sometimes patience is very necessary. Not at the expense of not taking action, but just remember everything does happen for a reason, even if that reason isn't obvious. Keep doing what you know is right, operate in faith, and let the pieces come together at just the right time. You will be so glad you did. With all this in mind, I want to introduce my guests this week. I'm interviewing two people together this week. My guests this week are Bob Dezine and Sue Bingham. Let me tell you about them. Sue Bingham is the founder of the HPWP Group, helping organizations create high-performing work environments through building trust and valuing people. And Bob is a partner at HPWP, and together they are the authors of the book, Creating the High-Performance Workplace. It's Not Complicated to Develop a Culture of Commitment. Working in the human resources department in several, for several years at an aerospace company, Sue experienced the soul-crushing effects of autocratic and controlling leadership. The company's HR policies and leadership practices had evolved in response to the misbehavior of a few bad employees and the interest of being fair, it painted every employee with the same negative brush. This lowered morale and performance across the board. After she left the company, she worked with her mentor and now husband to develop a philosophy and culture that would go on uh, Uh, to implement in other organizations with incredible success. Bob grew up on a farm in Kansas and pursued a career in civil engineering and construction. He eventually redirected his career, becoming a training and human resources director. And after leaving the corporate world, he began to collaborate with Sue and her unique approach to culture and leadership. We will talk about so much today. It's going to be a very wonderful show. So here we are with Bob Dezine and Sue Bingham. Bob and Sue, how are you today?
2: Really good. Thanks.
1: We're great. Thanks for having us. Hey, you're so very welcome. I'm excited to dive into this. The first thing I normally ask people is just to give us a sense of your backstory. I'm sure there's stuff in the bio that weren't included. I'd love to have you fill in some of the gaps if you'd like.
3: Uh, sure. We uh, <clears throat> and uh, you hit a lot of the big things in in the uh, in our bios and our intros, and appreciate that. Um, my my background's extensively in construction. Uh, I did spend a lot of time as a, a project manager, but then I moved, as you said, into the training and human resources area, and it, it gave me a really uh, broad and and complete perspective on dealing with people and personnel issues in a company, both from a, a, a you might say a field or managerial standpoint, and from the HR and training perspective, as as to uh, why people do what they do, and and how to guide people to do the things that 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 help them become the, the most successful they can be. So I, I it gave me a very complete background. I've worked with Sue now for twelve or thirteen years. Uh, we share a lot of, of uh, similar philosophies, and uh, and we're actually today started working on our second book. So that's kind of where where I'm at. I'll let Sue uh, talk a little bit more about herself. Sure. Okay.
2: Thanks, Brian. Not that much, really, to add. You did a nice job, okay. but I think it was my experience in seeing how badly people are treated at work. Uh-huh. Uh, I just got an upfront, close view of it, being in employee relations. You know, people being yelled at, demeaned, screamed at, all the crazy, stupid policies um, that that were insulting to the you know vast majority of people who wouldn't intend to do anything, um, that, that was wrong. And, and so it's, um, you know, it, it it just became sort of a a life mission. of we have got to make the workplace better for people. Not, and not only is it better for them, but it's better for business.
1: Absolutely. And both of you came from very analytical backgrounds. I noticed that I bet that has served you so well, hasn't it?
3: Yeah, it has. Uh, and that's, that's a great point to bring up because, uh, I did a, a, a what I would consider a 180 in my career, going from uh, project management and engineering, uh, having a civil engineering degree to more the people side of the business with HR and training. Uh, and, and both those have served me well um, just in, in helping me see uh, all seeing the different angles
1: and perspectives that all employees have. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. So how did you all get interested in your current field of endeavor? I know that part of it had to do with being dissatisfied with where you currently were, but what is it about what you're doing now that just really uh, gets you going every day?
2: Um, Well, one of the things that's wonderful is I've been now doing this for almost 30 years and you get to see. We, we have a leadership workshop that people attend, and, and we watch people come in with their arms crossed. This is for management and leaders. We watch owners, executives, and middle managers, frontline supervisors, we watch them come in with their arms folded, you know, because they manage the way they've been managed. And yes. that's, that's pretty common. And these are good people, it's just that they haven't necessarily had a good role model. And everybody's pretty much done what their manager did, so they come in sort of with their arms crossed and and so on. But by the time they've gone through uh, the week, which is largely experiential learning in in kind, we have it's not unusual to have um, you know grown men, you know, thirty year manufacturing managers who are emotional yeah. about the opportunities they've missed to really make a difference in the lives of the people that work with them. So, and, and, and for, for the benefit of the company. So it's really, um, it's, we get rewarded every single time we get to have an interaction with uh, a leader who says, you know what, I, I, this doesn't make any sense anymore. I, I want to do stuff differently.
1: Yeah, and I would imagine that in some of those situations where people are there with arms crossed, they're forced to be at your event, and it's not necessarily because they think they can't learn from you, but it's because my boss made me come. Right, That's hard.
3: Well, we we do have some of those hurdles to cross. It's and, absolutely, uh, yeah. We noticed those right away on Monday, and you know, a lot of times by uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, and then thir- especially by Wednesday and Thursday. The, the arms become uncrossed and and they're starting to see, you know, these are great people. Uh, yeah. they, a lot of people in what we, we refer to as traditional environments versus high performance environments where it's autocratic and, as Sue said, the, the demeaning behavior and things. A lot of people don't know that there's a better way. They, yeah. They've never experienced a different way. Like, this is the way it's supposed to be in a workplace. and it, And it's not. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. In fact,
2: we've had we've had managers tell us that 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 who really bought into the philosophy that most people are good and they want to do a good job and that if you operate off of that assumption, um, you'll get much better results. We, we've we got a lot of people who believe that um, or or would believe that um, coming in. But they've been told in previous jobs that if they spent too much time with with the people that work for them, that they were weak.
4: Yeah. Uh,
2: Oftentimes people got counseled on doing what we consider to be the right thing.
1: Yeah. I have a teaching background, so I am feeling some commonality. So I love this I love this episode for that reason. Let me ask something, because the lecture style yuck, it's boring and it doesn't it doesn't always work. But if you want people to get the most out of your sessions, they have to come to their own epiphany, don't they?
2: They do.
3: Absolutely, they do.
1: And that's and Sue.
3: Uh, has done a brilliant job of, for instance, in our leadership workshop of laying out and and organizing the entire four and a half day process. And it is uh, everything happens when it happens for a reason. And it's very experiential because you hear us as facilitators lecture to people. Not at all. We we, mm-hmm. we have discussions and conversations. Most of it is is a self-discovery and self-awareness. People start to discover through these experiential activities and processes that we do that, that there certainly is and can be a, a different and better
1: way to do things. Absolutely. What would you say is your big
2: mission? Um, well, from my perspective, in, just in general, it's, it's to make the workplace one in which people feel valued, that they feel successful. That when they go home at night, um, it's not that they've just checked the box and gotten through another day and got a paycheck, that they're going home and in front of their kids, they're talking about, you know, what they've accomplished and how great that was and really setting up the next generation to look at work as something that is meaningful and um, contributory and, and exciting rather than, you know, it's a paycheck. Yeah. Absolutely.
3: One of the way, one of the ways we 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 say it is, is that we want to create an environment where people want to go to work instead of have to go to work. Mm. And too many people from the time they get up in the morning are thinking, I have to go to work today. Yeah. Uh, and when they get home, they're thinking, I have to go to work tomorrow. So we,
1: we want to be a place they want to be. Yeah, absolutely. We've got about a minute or so to our first break. Bob, you did you did stand up comedy before. How has that served your career? Well, uh, good.
3: I, I've actually done a little bit of stand-up. I've done mostly improvisation. And oh. uh, I tell you what, that, that has been the catalyst. And and really, if I hadn't done that early in my career, uh, starting probably 25 years ago, I studied at Second City Players Workshop for two years. Uh, it did one thing. It got me beyond my stage fright. Yes, But it also... It, it, you know, uh, facilitating a workshop or doing any kind of a speaking event or training. You're a teacher. You, you've experienced it. Every every minute is improvised. I mean, you never know in a, in a classroom what the next student's going to say or ask. And it's the same way in a workshop. So, yeah, the the improv has uh, benefited me more
1: than probably any past experiences that I've had. Awesome. And we are up against our first break. My very special guests this week are Bob Dezine and Sue Bingham. We will talk about their book right after the break. We'll be right back. through pharmaceutical companies. But now there's a natural way to solve this problem without the harmful side effects. The Healthy Primate Stress Support Supplement contains natural ingredients proven to reduce cortisol, also known as the stress hormone, which causes damage to our body. And unlike prescriptions, your satisfaction is guaranteed with a 100% money-back offer on all orders. In addition, a portion of all proceeds goes to PTSD research. And as a bonus, all purchases will include a free copy of the new ebook, The Survival Guide to Living with Stress. So get the Healthy Primate Stress support supplement today at www.screwstress.com. Click the Amazon logo. It'll take you where you need to go. Once again, that is www.screwstress.com. Have you ever thought about writing a book? Surveys show that 81% of people wish they could, but many never do. If you're one of those people, I can tell you why. You don't think you have time. You may not know how, or you might not believe you are a good enough writer. When you're working with an experienced coach, these reasons go away because I will help you every step of the way. If you want to know more about how to write a nonfiction book, whether it's business, self-help, or how-to, reach out to me at www.briankwright.com for more information. Once again, that's Briankwright.com.
0: Welcome back to Success Profiles Radio. So many people live their lives wanting more than they currently have. And this show will clearly demonstrate the principles, if I can do it, you can do it. So let's get back to the show. This is Success Profiles Radio. And here again is your host, Brian K. Wright.
1: And we're back. This is Success Profiles Radio. My very special guests this week are Bob Dezine and Sue Bingham. And their book is called Creating the High-Performance Workplace. It's not complicated to develop a culture of commitment. And if you do not have my most recent book, it's called Success Profiles, Conversations with High Achievers. You can get it in Barnes & Noble on their website you can also get it in their stores you can get it in books a million you can also find it on amazon get it get it get it i cannot tell you how excited i am about my book very much as my guests are very excited about their books so bob and sue tell us what made you decide to write your book
2: oh well i've been i've been saying i was going to write a book for the last 20 years probably probably like a lot of us do who, yes who, who have have a message that we want to get to a lot of people and we Um, we think that a book is a way to do it, but it's a lot of, as you know, Brian, it's a lot of work. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's figuring out exactly what to say, being able to say it clearly and being able to say it in a way that's impactful. So we, we, we didn't start off to write the next gone with the wind. We really wanted to write something that spoke to people that was easy to read spoke to people and would cause them to take some action. And working with Bob helped me because, you know, on my own, I just didn't quite get there. When Bob and I started working together, um, it just clicked.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the decision to write collaboratively instead of alone, I'm sure was a very interesting decision as well. What what made you decide that?
3: Uh, I. I think because, well, and I really had never thought about writing a book much, but I I think if we hadn't, we probably wouldn't have ever gotten there. I think the reason we did is because it would help us push each other. Yes. Um, It also gave us um, the opportunity to bounce ideas off each other, um, edit each other's work and writing. Uh, It it kind of, you know, split the load of of writing a book because we're trying to run a company and a business at the same time. Yes. So there were, there were several reasons that we felt that collaborating on this was going to get a, a better finished product and get it done more effectively and, and quickly. Absolutely. At the,
2: at the time, Ryan, one of the things that's interesting about that is that it was it was, I'm just not funny. I mean, I wish I was funny. Yeah. I'm not. And as a writer, I'm, I'm sort of just the facts, ma'am, and I can describe things and so on. So what I wanted to do was communicate the, the concepts behind the philosophy in this operating system. But I wanted Bob to add humor to it and write some things in it that, that might be humorous. And so yeah. I had him in it like sort of pigeonholed into this role. Mm-hmm. When it actually started rolling out, Bob had so much to contribute to the content um and so on and then i found i had a lot that i wanted to contribute to the stories yes so so we ended up sharing um it it started off one way and ended up even better
1: that's fantastic now a lot of people out there who are writing uh, russell with the question of should they self publish should they go with a publisher or they should go with a hybrid publisher what mitigated that decision for you all
2: what really helped us is that our marketing person annie was went to a seminar she knew we wanted to write a book and and there happened to be a guy named um, henry DeVries who does these small seminars in various places they're free Mm -hmm. and so you can go and his his purpose is that a book is one of the best um, marketing tools one of the best um, calling cards that you have and so he you know, one of the first questions he said to us is, is, are you really wanting this to be the novel of a lifetime or are you writing this to promote the business and help people understand what you do? And we said, yeah, that. And so he and he he he's very focused on getting your message out to as many people as possible through not only the book, but also being able to speak to it. And you have more likelihood of being booked for speaking engagements um, when you've written a book.
1: Absolutely. So let's talk about some of the themes in your book. Uh, I think one of the most foundational things that we can start with is to ask, what is the difference between a leader and a manager?
3: Yeah, I I think we've both got takes on that and they're probably fairly similar, but uh, a leader is not about title. Uh, A manager uh, is in a position and managers uh, tasks, duties, job is important but a manager, to me, uh, guides people and guides a group of people to get things done. Mm-hmm. Uh, a leader inspires, motivates, sets a vision, and does those things that, that really not every manager uh, can do at a high level. Yeah. Uh, and, and leader, when I say it's not about position, there are people in companies, as you, you know, I'm sure, mm-hmm. who, who, are, who exhibit great leadership but don't have a title. Of of any kind of supervisor, manager, vice president, but, but, but people listen to them, they're motivated by them, and they follow them. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So did you want anything to add anything to that?
2: I, I just wanted to say, I, I, I always think of managers managing processes and leaders leading people. I mean, yeah. one's more around the process, and one's more around the people, and you need both. It's great if you can find them both combined in one person, but often you can't.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we talked a little bit about micromanagement or at least it's in your bio i've experienced it i'm sure you all have experienced it i'm sure a lot of our listeners do i hate it 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 just feels almost like we're being treated like we're still in school and who who wants that especially when you're an adult so where do you think micromanagement comes from and why do why do managers do this
2: well from my perspective it comes from a lack of trust i mean there's a there's a number of different factors one of the factors is that you know, we'll we'll often promote people who are doing the best technical job, and really understand that. And then we don't give them any training. We don't talk about the different expectations we have for them as leaders, and so they're left sort of in a sink or swim mode. I think the other thing, um, as it applies to, um, oh, I just forgot what I was going to say.
3: Um, well, one of the thing, one of the things too, is that you know, uh, fifty years ago a guy named Douglas McGregor is a behavioral psychologist, came up with his theory X and Y. And a lot of that still applies today. His theory X said that in the workplace, managers or leaders believe that that people are kind of lazy and don't want to do very much. They don't care about the company. They don't want to solve problems or make decisions. And theory Y says that people are self-motivated. They want to do a great job. They want to have some autonomy and today a lot of leaders when you lead by that theory x when you think that people are not bright and don't want to do the best work they can do they're going to get by with as little as possible you're going to feel like well i've i've got to micromanage them if i'm not looking over their shoulder they're not going to get stuff done yeah, yeah
2: comes out of a comes out of a lack of trust yeah
3: it absolutely it's goes a, back to a trust it's, issue
2: it's a trust issue but it's issue. just
3: the belief that people uh, don't want to achieve any more than they do. You
1: you call those the 5%ers, don't you?
3: <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, and and we don't want to always confuse 5%ers with somebody who just um is is not performing well in a certain area. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. The 5%ers are the ones who truly are there to do as little as possible. They're not very trustworthy, and those people exist in the workplace. Uh, but sometimes people can exhibit or look like five percenters or maybe have some of that behavior because they're being led in a very um, autocratic, autocratic, demeaning environment. And yeah. so even great people put in a bad environment are not going to perform very well. So they aren't necessarily five percenters. There's a lack of high performance leadership. But yet absolutely, the five percenters are are going to get by with everything they can absolutely and not be a team player sure
2: and we're really adamant about a a don't hire them you know do right. everything possible through your behaviorally based interviewing to make sure you don't don't get one and, and reference checking and second, if you do have one you, you've one slipped in because they're pretty slippery if one gets in there you get get them out as soon as possible
1: yeah and you know some companies, just don't want to fire people. I've been in places where I've looked around and I'm thinking, why are you still here? But you can't say that out loud to anybody. So <laughs> why, why why, do some companies just hang on to people for so long?
2: Well, um, well I can do one thing, Bob. Sure. You can add to it. There are a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons. One one is the the they're afraid, even if they've got someone who's not performing that well, what the devil they know is better than the devil they don't know. And as as the uh, employment market shrinks there's there's a willingness i just had a guy tell me the other day that they have uh, a point system for um attendance which we think is ridiculous but that's another subject but he, they have a point system and you can miss 19 days before you get terminated or you ha- you are fired
4: wow. he was
2: telling me about a guy that had 37 points oh and 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 was still coming in late and the guy's like, "Yeah, but you're not going to fire me." You mm. know, because he was he was good at what he did. And but he had you know, there's no negative consequences or there's no you know, the difference there is this is a good operator, he's probably not a five percenter. It's a lack of leadership where you're setting an expectation. And, and you're, you're, you're believing in that, that the person will meet that expectation. And if they don't, you're having a pretty direct conversation with them.
1: Yeah. I think some of that comes down to culture and we've got a couple minutes to our next break. How do you establish a culture where there is consistency?
3: Uh, Consistency in, in how we deal with those issues. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's one thing we do and to follow up on, on what Sue's saying, uh, when, when an the reason leaders don't deal with it too is is it's it's takes time it's difficult for them they don't they don't really know how they're to in today's age they're they're afraid of lawsuits Mm. um so the processes in the the culture that we advocate says that and and you know communication is, is so cliche that we have to be better communicators but the fact is most leaders don't really communicate and interact and get to know their people. So the part that's consistent is get to know the people you work with and and be able to have conversations with them that promote the highest performance and the highest levels of engagement. And, Absolutely. That's, and that's where the five percenters stick out. They don't want to be involved
1: or engaged. And if they're not, get them out of your workforce. Absolutely. I I think that's fantastic. We are coming up against our next break. My very special guests this week are Bob Dazeen and Sue Bingham. Their book is called Creating the High Performance Workplace. It's not complicated to develop a culture of commitment. And when we come back on the other side, we're going to talk about The idea of treating people the same, because sometimes in companies, people think they need to be treated the same, but there's a difference between that and treating everyone fairly. And the idea of some employees getting special treatment or the perception thereof, I think is a very fascinating topic to lead the next section off. We will come right back after the break. This is Success Profiles Radio. Please stay with us. Don't go away. And if you've not downloaded and subscribed to Success Profiles Radio, please do that on iTunes for free. We'll be right back. And we are back. This is Success Profiles Radio. Uh, My very special guests this week are Bob Zine and Sue Bingham. And if you've not picked up my book, Success Profiles, Conversations with High Achievers, please do that. It's in Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Books A Million, and everywhere fine books are sold. And so coming into the last break, I teased a topic that I think is something that we should talk about because you see this in sports. You see this in business the superstars tend to get a special set of rules or they tend to get treated differently, but there are people who might think, well, you need to treat all of us the same, but you really can't. And that's not really the goal, is it?
2: Well, it is. um, You know, I I was a practitioner in employee relations in California for 15 years and California is a different kind of state um, as it relates to employer, employee relationships and so on. And the, the, we're constantly admonished as leaders and managers and HR people to treat everybody the same. You've got to treat everybody the same. And the reason we're admonished to do that is more based on direction from our legal people who, you know, we appreciate the legal advice and so on, but when we treat everybody the same, regardless of the fact that they're different and the circumstances are different and so on, then they begin to feel like they're a number. And I've had so many people say, I left that company, I'd just i I'd become a number. Um, so you don't treat the 30-year guy necessarily in the same situation as you treat the two-week guy. Yes. Treat them the same in terms of asking what's going on and what's happening, but the way they respond um, may be different and cause you to take a different action. So we're, we're much more focused on fair versus the same.
3: Yeah, Absolutely. Brian, my, uh, my wife is a, a school counselor, kindergarten through f- fifth grade, and wow. she's had a sign on her wall for forever. And it says that um, fair is not uh, treating everybody the same. It's giving everybody what they need in order to be successful. Yeah. And everybody needs different things to be successful, and so that's that's where you uh, you know there's a there's a lot of gray area in a high performance environment. It's not check the box. I did this for every single employee. Uh, every situation, every employee is different, and you can't treat unequal things equally.
2: And to that extent, since we believe we're dealing with adults. We don't have a lot of rules, mm-hmm. uh, conduct rules. No horseplay. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't to bring a knife to work. Don't spit. Yeah. And, I mean, all that, all that stuff. We 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 don't have those rules. We have one standard of conduct that says we expect everyone to act in the best interest of the company and their fellow employees. Yeah. And as as leaders and as managers, we're expected to use judgment about what does that mean and and what's the impact of that, and to have. Uh, open two-way adult-to-adult conversations about that when things happen that aren't expected or aren't desired so um, that's that's what we think is missing in in an awful lot of traditional environments
1: exactly and in the interest of giving people what they need to succeed do you believe in personality assessment tests during the interview process because I've been in companies where I've taken the disc or I've taken the Myers-Briggs what's your take on that
2: my take on that is that that the number one most important thing you do in a company is who you hire. Yes. I mean, the number one thing. Anything that adds value to that decision, I'm, I'm when people ask me that question, I say, hey, if, if you believe that that'll add value to the decision, that's great. Treat it as an input. Um, I know companies that have used it as the decision factor, and I think that's a mistake.
3: Yeah, it's it's one it's
1: one of the many elements that can go into the process. Absolutely. The Great. You talk in your book about unlocking high performance and you outline eight steps. If you want to talk about as many of those as you'd care to, that's perfectly fine. But give us a sense of how you unlock high performance on your teams.
2: You, you start this is boy, this is the crux of it, Brian. Yeah. You start with positive assumptions about people even if you've had some bad experiences with, with, you know, those five percenters, whatever's happened, you've got to start with positive assumptions about people. And it's so easy to form a negative assumption. You know, one of the things we'll say is if you walk by three guys, you know, talking in the plant, what's your assumption? And the assumption is they're goofing off or they're not working or, you know, something negative instead of having positive assumptions. Um, and, and so we start with, with positive assumptions because if you have positive assumptions and you believe that people are good and they want to do a good job and they didn't get up this morning coming in to do as little as possible, then you find yourself with different behavior. You're challenging, you're trusting, um, you're empowering, you're doing all those kinds of things because you believe people are capable. So for us, it starts with, with positive assumptions, which leads to a lot of the other elements.
3: Yeah, and Brian, what you what you have when when you have uh, when when leaders don't have positive assumptions, you mentioned earlier micromanaging. Yes. Uh, we, we when managers don't have positive assumptions, they micromanage, they keep information from employees, they they um, lock stuff. Up. They lock stuff up. They create a lot of rules and policies to control mostly the five percenters, and when when employees see that behavior um what do you suppose they do well if if the if the leaders aren't initiating engagement the employees say they must not want to hear from me so mm. they don't they don't engage and the more the employee doesn't engage the more the leader thinks see i told you that they didn't want to engage and and it creates this downward spiral mm. and and that's where leaders have to step up and start having positive assumptions when you have those positive assumptions and you, you start engaging employees, you start uh, backing away from micromanaging, employees respond and say, they do want to hear from me. They do think I can make my own decisions and solve my own problems. And, and,
1: and the spiral goes the other direction. Absolutely. And sometimes rules are in place just to catch who they perceive to be the few bad apples in the organization rather than having rules to empower performance, Right. Yeah, that's exactly why they're in place.
3: It's (laughs) it's an attempt to control the 5% population that you shouldn't have in your workplace to begin with. And that leads to the the second um, element of a high-performance workplace is eliminating those things we call negatives in the workplace, uh, which aren't things that people don't like, but things that devalue people. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And one of those is... You think about Brian rules and policies to try to control the five percenters. How do all these rules impact the ninety-five percenters, the great employees? It it impacts them negatively because they're they're looking at it like I'm not going to do anything wrong. Why do you have to have all these rules? And so it it, it has a negative impact. It devalues your good employees. Yeah. And
2: I'm sure I'm sure every manager has experienced this. We think the five percenters use all those rule books as a game plan. I mean, they, they, they know what those policies are. They can figure ways around it. They're they're, It's a, it's a playbook for them. Yeah. Whereas whereas your good employees don't really know what they are until they get get caught in one. Like a a good example is policies that, that that say you got to be at work the day before and the day after a holiday to get paid for the holiday. Lots of companies have that. Well, they did that because people were making a long weekend yep. and just calling in and weren't planning it. But because you're supposed to treat everybody the same, you know, the guy that's in an accident on his way to work or the guy who's, whose children get sick and he's always been at work, he's really reliable, but now all of a sudden the policy book says you have to treat him the same and you can't pay him for that holiday. And, you know, when you, when you treat... a a good person like that who's who's never demonstrated any of these other kinds of 5% behaviors. It's so demotivating.
1: Yeah. And I think the worst crime a company can commit is to cause a really great employee to not care
2: anymore. Yes. Oh, Brian, you are so good at this stuff. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You are are 100% right. And that's That's why we're, what is it, the Gallup poll said that there's 70 some percent people who aren't engaged at all at work. And and a lot of people, you know, we're creating sort of this mediocre sort of zombie-like workforce instead of the vibrant, creative, high potential group we could be doing. And I I would like to say that there's, there's more of the vibrant workplace, high performance workplace than not, but uh, that's not our, that's not our experience.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let me ask, and I, I think we're getting relatively close for our next break, probably three minutes or so. I want to ask about the concept of promoting people. Let's just say that you've got a sales department, you need a sales manager. A lot of people think, well, let's promote the person who's best at sales because they can teach everybody else, but their temperament might not be a manager or leadership type of, person to do that. So do you really want to take your highest performing person off the floor? I don't think that's necessarily a good idea. What do you think?
2: Well, you're 100% right. And let me tell you where it's the most pervasive and the biggest problem. The frontline supervisors are the people that impact the largest majority of the frontline employees. So they've got the most number of people to lead and influence. And those folks are usually promoted because they're technically good, they're reliable, they've got service, they've been loyal. But most of these people, if you said, "Hey, your job is going to be to inspire and create a high-performing team. How do you plan to do that?" They would—they would be like a deer in the headlights. And they're—they're mm-hmm. they're good people, they're smart people, but boy, we—we. We, we don't, we don't set the expectation of you're managing a group of 20 some people potentially. Mm-hmm. How, how, how are you going to have them feel valued? How are you going to maximize their potential and their contribution? I mean, these are, these are things that, that when we promote our best technical person and then don't train them, um, is the resulting productivity, uh, or lack thereof is, is what occurs.
1: Absolutely. We've got two minutes to our next break. I, think about hiring people and my philosophy is hire a character and you can train everything else what do you think
3: <laughs> we we absolutely agree with that we we uh absolutely believe in hiring based on attributes um character. and 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 character and uh you, your in, in for the most part now there are technical skills for certain jobs that that experiences is, is a great thing um yes. and 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 needed um, or maybe a specific background, an engineer or whatever. But for a lot of, of jobs in an organization, skills can be taught. And and it, you can ask anybody, would you rather have somebody with 20 years experience, but their attributes and, char- and character is is not of the highest level? Or would you rather have somebody with a year of experience, but is this absolutely motivated, high energy, trustworthy, engaged person, you'll take that person and you'll teach them what you need to teach. You want great people in your workforce and and
1: the skills can can follow. Absolutely. We are coming up against our final break. I can't believe how quickly this is going. This has been such a fun hour. My guests this week are Bob Dazine and Sue Bingham and their book is called creating the high performance workplace it's not complicated to develop a culture of commitment and in the final segment we're going to ask them where we can get the book I'm going to ask them uh, a lot of different questions that I'm just going to withhold until we come back from the break this is success profiles radio and we will be right back don't go away we will return shortly and down the stretch we come Day for a better sleep tomorrow, healingfrequencyproducts.com. Reaching out from the heartland of the United States with quality programming, this is TogiNet Radio.
4: It's you have probably heard about the Ring Video Doorbell app. It has a motion sensor that alerts your cell phone if someone is on your porch or rings a doorbell. All you have to do is tap your phone and you can see who is at your door and talk to them through a remote mounted camera and speaker. My husband thought this would be a good idea to have for our home. However, I had no idea he had installed it while I was out of town. Imagine how confizzled I felt when I returned home, went to unlock the door, and suddenly heard my husband's voice calling at me from from seemingly nowhere, he had installed a camera and speaker high up in a tree next to our front porch. Talk about being surprised and confused! What's another word for being confused? Flabbergasted. It's Martin I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words.
1: And we are back. This is Success Profiles Radio, and down the stretch we come. And if you have not downloaded and subscribed to Success Profiles Radio on iTunes, what are you waiting for? Do it. Please do it. And leave a review. That would mean the world to me. We are with Bob Dazine and Sue Bingham. And their book is called Creating the High-Performance Workplace. It's not complicated to develop a culture of commitment. And you all said to me earlier that you're starting your second book. Yes. We are. Absolutely. Do you have a, a clearly defined idea of that yet? Or are you still in the we're figuring out stage? I'll say that we absolutely kind of think we have an idea for that book. (laughs) That's fine. Um, We don't have to go any further than that, but just know that if you like the first book, you're probably going to like the second one, whatever it's going to be. We're still in the outlining process. So, yeah. And that's so important because a lot of people, I do ghostwriting. I don't think I mentioned that Mm -hmm. to y'all, but I do ghostwriting and I do work with clients and sometimes they have a pretty good idea of what they want to do. And sometimes they just really don't know. And so I talk about, Starting with an outline. I talk about having your stories and figuring out where in the outline your stories go because the stories have to have a reason and a purpose. They aren't just for the sake of their own stories. You have to have a reason for your stories. And so plot it out on a map, figure out where it goes. It makes writing so much easier when you've got an outline. I love it. That's good. (laughs) Awesome. So here's what I want to ask because you talk in the book about how leaders learn to embrace taking risks. And that's something that the brain doesn't want us to do. So how do we embrace that?
3: Yeah. And you could, you, you know, I guess you can look at risk a lot of different ways. Um, risk, you know, it, in a lot of the things we've talked about in this, in this session, um, it, it, leaders, especially traditional leaders, anytime they, they do any of the things we're talking about, they feel like they're taking a risk. If they're giving an employee a new challenge or or if, if they're asking an employee to solve a problem or whatever they do, they, 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 they feel there's risk involved. And, uh, you know, we talked early on about risk in terms of uh, when you terminate somebody, is there going to be a lawsuit? Uh, mm. What are going to be the repercussions of all these actions? So, um, yeah, in, in a in a high-performance environment, uh, the And it goes back, Sue mentioned earlier about trust. Um, when there's high trust, uh, employees, engaged employees are more willing to take risks and not risks that could damage or harm the company, but just to to do things that otherwise in a traditional environment they wouldn't do.
2: I also right. think leaders leaders avoid risk because if you if you have a culture of fear and and I I worked with a number of companies. Maybe you've worked in them too,
0: mm-hmm.
2: where where fear is a part of the culture, where we look for the blame versus the cause of the mm-hmm. the issue, where where we've we've absolutely punished people for trying to do something good but having it go wrong. Yeah. Uh, if there's a if there's a culture of fear. I mean, there's there's no way to be able to get high performance in that kind of a culture,
4: right. and I think
2: the risk is tied into that. I yeah. think if 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 you have a culture that's that's built more on safety and on positive assumptions, then you're far more willing to take risks.
1: Absolutely, and my observation on that that very same idea is that in school we are socialized that making mistakes is bad. Yeah, <laughs> and <laughs> so yeah. and so when we get to companies, we expect that making a mistake is bad but is it possible to create an environment where you create a safety net to where it's okay to fail a little bit as long as it doesn't do long-term damage to somebody else or the company
2: well the new paradigm is fail faster yeah i mean that's the new paradigm
1: fail and move
3: on with it yeah Yeah. try try something different do something different but you you have to have that environment where there there's going to be a risk of failure if you're not if employees and leaders aren't uh, aren't operating with a chance that what they're doing might not be completely successful. Nobody's ever going to try anything.
1: Yeah. Do you think stagnant? Do you think the willingness to take a risk should be a hiring criteria for promoting to a manager?
2: What a good thing to say. I'm writing that down, Brian. Brian.
1: Oh, yes. well, look <laughs> at
2: that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I definitely think that.
3: I think sometimes that goes back to our difference between sometimes between managers and leaders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Leaders are willing to take risks and know and, and trust that people can follow through with whatever that is that, that contains that risk. Yeah. Managers in traditional environments will say, I'm, I'm not trying that because I don't want a chance that it might fail.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of times managers act out of self-preservation instead of acting out of the interests of the group and, and forward progress. Completely. We Completely. see that. We see that all the time in traditional
3: companies the in fact, some managers, very traditional leaders don't want to engage with us because they see it as a threat to their job. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like they're going to be found out. They, yeah. they, you know, they, they, they hide behind that that leadership or that management role that they're in yeah. and, and, the, and it doesn't allow them, their company or their coworkers to move forward. Yeah. And,
2: I, and I'm an HR person. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so I, uh, this is not meant to be an indictment of my profession, but, but HR people have been so coached that their role is to mitigate risk. That the biggest obstacles to creating a high-performance workplace that we often bump up against when we're going in will we'll be that HR group because they're charged with mitigating risk. Yeah, and and everything we talk about in terms of using judgment and treating people fairly versus the same, all those kinds of things just spell red flags of risk, risk, risk um, to that particular group. And so there's, they become very much of an obstacle to yeah. helping the organization move forward.
1: Absolutely. And the role of a leader should be to create other leaders, right? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. So let's talk about your high performance leadership workshop, because I know that you do these with companies and organizations in an effort to encourage high performance. Tell us about that. And where can we learn more?
2: Oh, you're, you're great. Thank you. We've we've been doing them for 25 years now. Um, and largely the difference in that particular workshop, we have many people that say, well, can't you do it shorter? Can't you do this? Um, you know, we, we we could buy into it easier if it wasn't five days. Mm-hmm. And the thing I always want to say to people that say, oh, man, I can't be away from five days for five days is to say, you're exactly the person that needs to be away for five days. Um, because you're not trusting, and you haven't built your organization to run better without you. Um, so we we really we I, I think the experiential nature of it and it the way that people just completely shift their mindset. Um, we believe that that if if we can get them to change their mind and the way they're looking at the people that they work with, that that the behaviors will come more automatically. And while we give a lot of tools we're far more focused on, on how do you think and how do you see this and what's your trust orientation, and, and, and if it's low, how do you combat that in creating a high-performance workplace? We, we talk about those things that are intensely personal to those individuals, and they sort of self-discover and come to their own conclusions, and I would say that you know by the time a, a workshop is over, it's limited to 24 people, there, there's 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 probably 24 people, if not maybe 23 people, who really are are committed to a different way of managing.
1: That's fantastic.
3: Where can we learn more? You can go to hpwpgroup.com, and uh, all of our information is there uh, for Sue and I and our our fellow um, team members at HPWP Group. It also uh, will list out when our next uh, public workshop is, which I believe is the third week of April. It's uh, in Texas. In Tech in Dallas coming up. So uh, you can find all that. There's also information there on the book and uh, a link to the book page on Amazon. Um, so uh, that's
1: that's pretty much,
2: that's thanks, pretty much thanks it. Thanks for asking.
1: You bet. HPWP.com. HPWPgroup.com. HPWPgroup.com. Thank you hpwpgroup.com. That's it. Fantastic. I know we're getting closer to the end. There's a couple more questions I want to ask. Number one, I know you all like to read just like I do. What is the most influential book you've ever read?
2: Oh gosh. Oh, why point at me, Bob? I, <laughs> I, 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 there's so many.
1: There, there are a lot.
3: Um, yeah.
2: Oh, I've got one. Um, it's an old one. You can't really get it that much anymore. You can get it on, um, on on Amazon, um, but it's written by a guy that after I read the book, I I went to meet him because I was so profoundly moved by his book. He's written several since then. His name's Mark Samuel, and he wrote The Power of Personal Accountability. And it talks about the power of personal accountability in a way that we normally don't talk about accountability. Um, And he changed my life just by reading that book. We use his book. We use his accountability model in our training, and he's since become a very close friend.
3: And, and that was going to be mine, but I'll, I'll go back to one I read um, 30 years ago, and it's a book that I think was written 70 years ago, probably, and still I think holds true in so many areas today, and it's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Um, yeah, I'm Carnegie. The, yeah, it had such a, an impact on me, and I'm always amazed when I go back and look at snippets of that book today how a lot of things
1: really in how we interact with each other haven't changed um, in that time. Fantastic. And the last question I ask everyone, we've got less than two minutes until the end, who inspires and motivates you?
2: Um, You know, this is going to be hokey. Um, My husband inspires and motivates me. He was my mentor. Um, I learned from him years and years and years ago. I've been sort of the purveyor of his his work and his philosophy. Um, he's since retired. Um, but I would say that to this day, he still motivates me always to be the best. Awesome.
3: Yeah. And uh,
2: if you don't say your wife, Bob, you're in trouble.
3: Yeah, I probably should. And she does. <laughs> yes. w- w- uh, when it comes to work, I, I'd have to say Sue. And I'm going to, I'm going to say Sue right here with me um, is, uh, has, has given me the ability to change my career and do, do the things now that I'm most passionate about and, and have the, uh, the best time in my career that I've ever had.
1: Fantastic. We're winding down to the end. And the book is called Creating the High-Performance Workplace. It's not complicated to develop a culture of commitment. And you can find that by going to hpwpgroup.com. Is that correct? That is correct. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Bob and Sue, for joining us today and sharing your wealth of knowledge with my audience. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much it was for having us.
2: So fun talking to you, Brian. Thank you.
1: Uh, you're so welcome. And thanks all of you for listening. This has been Success Profiles Radio. Join us every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern where I interview another world-class achiever, or in this case, two world-class achievers, to learn what they did in their journey and what they overcame and the lessons we can learn from. it. We had a great place talking about building workplace culture and productivity. Join us next week. Thank you for joining us. This has been Success Profiles Radio.